You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. So in all the chaos of this election this year, we've seen an interesting voter outreach tactic. Hillary Clinton's campaign in Ohio, the crucial swing state, is using Pokemon Go to recruit voters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go. But I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon Go to the polls. As a non-Pokemon Go player, I was a little confused about how this works or why a campaign would use Pokemon Go, but this story really stood out to me from all of the deluge of news about the election and the constant media cycle of the election. This Pokemon Go story really stood out to me. So I brought in our resident, on-staff, Pokemon Go expert. It's Emily McCarty. Hi, Emily. Hi. Emily, you're our editorial intern for this summer, and you come to us from Journalism School in Vancouver, B.C. Uh, but thanks for coming down and joining us in Portland for the summer and lending your talents to bitch. And one of your main talents is champion Pokemon Go player. Um, what's your favorite Pokemon? Um, I would say Squirtle. It's like an adorable turtle. That sounds cute. So how does Squirtle relate to American democracy? Tell us about this whole this whole Clinton campaign using Pokemon Go to register voters thing. What's the deal? So in Ohio, there were some young campaigners who set up lures, which are things in the game that attract um, Pokemon. So a lot of people look at lures in the game and they follow those and go to those locations. Um, the campaigners also set up little registration booths near Pokestops and gyms, which are both places where you can collect supplies or go to battle other Pokemon. So what they did was they set up lures and they set up little booths or had people there with um, voter registration packets. And people followed them, went to the lures, went to the Pokestops, and they asked if they would like to register to vote. So basically, like, they're sitting at Pokemon hotspots and all the people playing the game are coming to them. And once they come to them, the, reg- the canvassers are like, haha, also register to vote. Yes. So these people who were playing Pokemon Go had no idea what would be at that lure or at that Pokestop. So they went there and then, boom, Hillary campaigners. So so amid the Squirtles and the Pikachus, there's also a form to register to vote. Correct. I think that what, what strikes me about the story is it shows that in our country, one of the main things that political campaigns have to do is actually just register people to vote. That we think about political campaigns having to convince people to vote for a specific candidate, to be like, vote for Hillary. But actually, at least progressive campaigns spend a lot of their time just registering voters, trying to find unregistered voters, and registering people to vote. It it seems significant to me. If Pokemon Go is playing a role in keeping our democracy (laughs) afloat and inclusive, maybe that's a bad sign about our democracy. Yeah, and they on Twitter, they only showed maybe three or four people that they actually registered. And when I reached out, um, I didn't get back any official numbers. But to me, it was more of, I got a lot of attention on media and social media. So to me, it's maybe more of, oh, okay, remember to vote, rather than actually having direct results. This ties into an article I was reading in the New York Times that basically blew my mind. And it was an article, it's just an infographic, and it breaks down what percentage of Americans actually voted 
for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in the primary season or during all the caucuses. Okay, so Emily, pop quiz. What percentage of Americans do you think voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton during the primary season? I assumed that it was like 20 plus percent for each. That's what I thought, too. I thought that at least like 25 percent of Americans wanted either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. But the New York Times broke down the numbers on who actually voted in the primaries, and it was 9 percent. So about 4.5 percent of Americans wanted Hillary, 4.5 percent wanted Trump. And now we're in the situation where Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are our front runners. They're going for you know, the election of the whole country. So reading that only 9 percent of Americans voted for Clinton or Trump, I just like that, that number really sticks with me. Like, why are so many people not voting or unable to vote? Why is like the future of our democracy being you know, really guided by 9% of people. So you've been doing some research this summer, Emily, on who's registered to vote and who's not registered to vote and on voter registration across the country. What kind of stuff have you have you seen that really stands out to you? Well, first of all, one quarter of eligible American citizens aren't even registered to vote. So that's 51 million people right there. And then you have to look at people who are non-citizens who can't vote and felons or ex-felons who also can't vote. Looking at felons and ex-felons is really important because even when they're off probation or not even on parole anymore and they've served their time, um, in a lot of states, they're still not eligible to vote. So one in 13 black Americans cannot vote because of these laws restricting felons or ex-felons from voting. So in a lot of conversations about elections and about our democracy, um, people who don't vote are really shamed for not doing that. And the whole conversation is framed around you should vote. You need to vote. It's your responsibility to vote. And if you don't vote, it's because you're lazy or you're stupid or you're uninformed or you're apathetic. But thinking about these numbers has really made me reflect on how I say that sometimes and how this whole issue around not voting is framed. And that it's not just that it's not just like that a quarter of Americans don't want to vote or are not informed enough to vote. There are barriers in place that keep people from voting. And it's worth examining those barriers and thinking, okay, really, let's dig into this. Like, why is it that so many Americans aren't voting and aren't guiding our democracy? Why is that? What sort of barriers exist there? Well, I looked at the 2008 census um, for numbers of why people don't register and why they don't vote. And the number one reason why people don't register is they're not interested. That was 45 percent. But you can't just say, oh, these people are apathetic. It might be because um, they don't feel included in the democratic process or they don't feel represented. So they don't feel like it's going to make a difference to them directly. Um, The second reason was they didn't meet registration deadlines, which is huge. So they had busy lives. They couldn't do it. They wanted to vote, but they didn't meet those deadlines. Also looking at the first two reasons why people don't actually vote. The first reason was conflicting schedules or they were too busy. So that directly goes hand in hand with not meeting deadlines and not being able to register in time. The second reason was illness or disability, which is huge when you think about that. These are people that wanted to vote, were registered to vote, but they just couldn't make it. A lot of that stems back to the way that voting works in our country, especially having like elections on one day where in most states you have to get down to the polls on that day and go to a very specific place to cast your ballot. So I think we should approach this lack of voting as a design problem that in a lot of ways our democracy is not designed to be inclusive. And we talk about democracy being representative, but who it represents isn't equal. And 
On this episode, we're going to really dig into that question. We're talking about the design of democracy and looking for design solutions to the central problem of what keeps people from voting. So if you don't live in the United States, if you're a Canadian, like your fellow classmates up in Vancouver, BC, you might not know that in the United States, voter registration works differently in every state. Some states have designed their systems to make it easier to register, and some states have designed their systems to make it harder to register, keeping more people from being able to actually vote. So Emily, you've done some research on voter registration systems in different states, and I just want to talk to you about what good design ideas have you seen for states that are actually designing their processes to make it easier to vote? So in Oregon, Oregon is really awesome because they were the first state to pass auto registration. They did that in January of this year. What's auto registration? Like you're automatically registered? Right. So anyone who had a DMV interaction between 2014 and 2015 was sent a mailer um, informing them that they are registered to vote automatically. And then and then what happens? They get this thing in the mail that says, hey, you're registered to vote. They have the option to return it to opt out, to return it and declare a party. Or if they do nothing, they're automatically registered. They don't have to do anything and they can show up to the polls and vote. And did this work? Did it actually lead to an uptick in registration? Yeah. So before this, they had around 2,000 registered voters a month. And after this, they had more than 28,000 per month. Wow. That's huge. And so that's definitely something that has made it so that more people are automatically registered to vote rather than, say, having to track down a canvasser at a pokey stop to register you to vote. You're opted in whenever you do anything involving the DMV. Um, but of course, there's some people who aren't going to like that because they don't want to be registered to vote or they think it's an invasion of privacy. Um, are other states adopting the same model or are other states saying, we actually don't want more people to register to vote or we think this is bad for some reason? So 29 states plus D.C. Um, brought forward either ballots or legislation to make it easier for people to register, i.e. they're automatically registered. Um, so far, besides Oregon, there have been five states that have passed registration, um, automatic registration laws, um, California, Vermont, West Virginia, and then just recently Connecticut and Illinois um, passed the legislation and they're on their way to get that approved before the elections. So this is potentially a huge change across the country for registering people to vote. But often when we look at, you know, the way that our democracy is designed to either make it easier to vote or harder to vote, a lot of what we hear about is ways that Republicans in recent years have been pushing bills to make it harder to vote. So what kind of design changes have we seen across the country, Emily, to make it harder to vote? How is, how is the system changing to exclude people? For the first time ever for a presidential election, 13 states have passed voter restriction laws, which makes it harder for people to vote. That includes things like being able to vote early, um, be able to register the day of, or re really restrictive ID specifications. So ha coming to the polls and having to have a certain specific ID in order to vote. What are the politics behind that? Like, why are people pushing to make it harder to register to vote? So the main argument that I found was voter fraud. Um, when I looked into the actual data behind voter fraud, um, they looked at 14 years, 2000 to 2014, and they found 31 cases of potential voter fraud out of... One billion votes cast. <laughs> so that's 31 cases of potential fraud out of a billion votes. So what's actually going on here? Just spell it out for us. So basically, they're, they're disenfranchising minority voters. That's the huge thing that's happening. Um, 
In North Carolina, Texas, and Wisconsin, um, they've all struck down restrictive laws. So these are good things happening in those three states. And uh, the court stated in North Carolina, there was a 2013 law, and they found that it specifically targeted black American voters. And what it did was cut down extended voting periods and put more restrictions on having really specific IDs. And what they found was um, black Americans are more likely to use those extended voting periods and to not have the correct IDs. So the court said this is complete direct discrimination of black Americans. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't think about. It's not just about turning out to vote on Election Day. It's about the systems we have in place that either make it easier for people to vote or harder for people to vote and that those systems are often invisible and they're often not talked about when we're saying, hey, you should go vote or why didn't people vote? We don't look at those barriers to access there. So thanks for doing that research, Emily. Thanks for laying that all out for us. You're welcome. So these are the issues we're exploring on today's episode, Designing for Democracy. We're looking at barriers to voting as well as creative design solutions that make it easier to vote. Today's episode was really guided by our listeners. We ran a survey of podcast listeners over the summer and asked what you wanted to hear more of on the show. So, so many people said they wanted to hear more perspectives from people with disabilities. And a lot of people said they wanted to hear more feminist men on the show. All right, we can do that. On today's show, we dig into a story about voting for people with disabilities and hear an excerpt from a brand new comedy album by the number one feminist dude comedian in my heart, Hari Kondabolu. Thanks for telling us what you wanted to hear. Your listener ideas will continue to guide our show all fall, so stay tuned.